The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who will love you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before I start today's show, I would like to thank Jerry for her recent donation. Thank you, Jerry. Today is Thursday, so it's time for Dr. Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And folks, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. We've got a topic for you, which is the real story of missions behind enemy lines. But I'm going to ask some direct questions to Peter to break it up a bit. It's a fascinating topic. Um, And I'm going to start off with this. Uh, Peter, you've been a missionary to restricted access areas and war zones for decades, and you are now approaching the 40th anniversary of your first cross-border mission into a communist country. This raises a number of questions. As you were raised in Rhodesia during a time of war, how did you end up dedicating your life to missions behind enemy lines throughout Africa and Eastern Europe? Over to you. Well, that is such a question. I mean, how did I end up here? It often seemed quite strange. In fact, some times in Africa as I've been suffering from sunburn and uh, uh, people been looking at me <laughs> smearing sun cream over myself and in the blazing sun and uh, in the 1040 window up just near the Sahara Desert and Nuba Mountains of Sudan. And uh, I've had some people say, you know, how did you get called to missions in Africa? You have know, got, I, I can't tan, I'm, I'm a sunburn waiting for somebody to happen. And uh, my very fair complexion doesn't particularly in, um, make me uh, an obvious candidate for uh, work in Afghanistan, stand out like a neon sign uh, that I'm not a local. And yet God called me from Rhodesia to minister throughout Africa uh, behind enemy lines. And I was brought up in a secular family, but it was a family with a military history. So we've had Hammonds involved in uniform going back through the Second World War and the First World War and all the way back to Napoleonic Wars and Waterloo and all of that. And so it was very much being involved in war was normal, and I certainly expect to spend my life as a soldier, probably. And my father served all six years in the Eighth Army and North Africa and Italy, mostly under Montgomery and others. My brother was in the Rhodesian Army. I expect to end up being a soldier, uh, fighting against the communists and doing my bit. Uh, and yet, uh, what changed us all was getting converted to Christ. 
On the 3rd of April, 1977, 45 years ago, I was converted. And the night I got my, my conversion, I received my call. And it was absolutely extraordinary. So uh, there I was uh, in South Africa with my military call-up coming up soon to join the South African army. And along comes a missionary past our church. And I knew I was called to missions. I joined his mission, Hospital Christian Fellowship, Francis Grimm. Uh, he had established Hospital Christian Fellowships in 100 countries of the world. And uh, his vision was more people pass through the hospitals of the world than through the churches. And so the hospitals are mission field. And the whole idea was to evangelize and disciple medical personnel, whether doctors, nurses, pharmacists, hospital orderlies, everyone in, in the healthcare industry, uh, to to have hospital Christian fellowships in every hospital, and these healthcare professionals would be able to evangelize and disciple not only other healthcare professionals, but the patients and their families. So what a phenomenal mission field. Well, with that background, um, working with them for six months before getting called into the army, and uh, I I was taught to pray, to trust God, and it was very wonderful being mentored by such a uh, experienced missionary. But when I went to the army, I was somewhat negative at that stage, which was strange because my whole life I'd wanted to be involved in fighting and as a soldier and what my ancestors had done, uh, you know, going all the way back to the Vikings. But now I looked at it as a waste of time. I want to be a missionary. And and the Lord really opened my eyes to the fact, oh, you're not in a mission field. And I looked around and well, yes, in fact, we could say more young people in South Africa at that time passed through the army than probably through the churches and youth groups. So I'm in the middle of a mission field, and obviously not everyone knew the Lord there, and from the sound of it, there's quite a few heathen around. And so I stood up, and this was really where our mission began. I knew I had to make a stand for Christ early, and uh, I stood up at the first chapman's period, and I asked Chapman if I could speak at the end of the service, and he said, go ahead. And this is quite frightening, very intimidating, but I stood up and I turned and I faced another five to 600 young people at that stage, uh, all my age looking the same as me, no hair, brown uniforms. And uh, um, here we were, the company would be whittled down to about 120 in the space of the next few weeks through selection, but there were about 600 of us at that first service. And I turned around and I said, I love the Lord Jesus with all my heart. And I want to honor him in my next two years here. If anyone else feels the same, please see me afterwards. Let's start a Bible study and a prayer fellowship. And that was it. But that was the beginning. And and out of that started our Bible study and prayer fellowship, which met almost every night throughout two years in the army. Of course, sometimes we were on patrols or night uh, uh, lunar ops, as we'd call it, um, night ambush duties and so on. So... Uh, I couldn't personally be at every single Bible study, but there always was of of our units, Bible study and prayer fellowships meeting every night in, in our two years in the army. And uh, out of that grew the vision for our mission to go into war-torn areas and evangelize soldiers and help persecuted churches. So uh, it was from being brought up in Rhodesia and it came from my conversion in 1977 and reading Operation World uh, doing our, uh, our Bible study and prayer fellowships, praying for the countries that obviously were our neighbors, were the first ones we prayed for, Mozambique, Angola, Zimbabwe, our enemies. And they considered themselves the frontline states. In fact, in the 1980s, they called themselves the frontline states. Angola, 
Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, they were in the front line of the war against apartheid South Africa, as they called it. And so they were the frontline states, and we were a fellowship of soldiers in the front line. And so the name frontline fellowship sums up that kind of origin, uh, the idea of being in the front line of missions, uh, recruiting Christians from those who've been in the front line of battle, and going into the frontline states. And it was a vision of evangelizing in the war zones, helping persecuted churches, smuggling Bibles into communist countries, because the vision came to me very clearly during one of our all-night prayer meetings in the army. They coming to us with bombs. Have we ever gone to them with Bibles? Cubans are coming to us with communism. Have we ever sent missionaries to Cuba? Not that I was aware of at that stage. The Russians are sending all kinds of weapons and all kinds of instruments of terror here against us. Have we ever sent missionaries to Russia? Not at that stage. I wasn't aware of any. And so the vision came to, to go to the enemy. As they coming to us with hate, we're going to go to them with Christian love. They're coming to us to kill. We're going to go to convert. We're going to see if we can be more than conquerors, not just to defeat the enemy in battle, which we'd been able to do, but that we would be able to win some of these enemy to be brothers in Christ who could then join us in the fight. And so the vision started to come together of a mission to go and start amongst the resistance across the border, Christians who would be more effective in demolishing and eroding communism than they are in attacking our Christian civilization. So there was a whole lot of things coming in, the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And that's got to include the communists too. And the Great Commission doesn't say go into all the world where it's safe, legal, and peaceful. Uh, it doesn't say stop at the barbed wire fence or the minefield or the iron curtain or the bamboo curtain for that matter. And so uh, this is this is the vision. And it was this extraordinary experience of of having two years of intensive Bible study and prayer fellowship with soldiers in a war situation and seeing how God answered prayers and, and having such clear guidance that God was calling us to go to our very enemies with the gospel and to subvert them with the gospel of Christ as they were trying to subvert us with their communist hate. So uh, it, it's, it's been an incredible adventure, but that's how I ended up dedicating my life to missions behind enemy lines. It's a fascinating story. And I think the other thing as well, you talked about the um, hospital mission uh, you started off with, and that was uh, somebody else's mission. But when did you, how difficult was it to decide you're going to set up your own mission and your own church, uh, Peter? Oh, I was very intimidated. I mean, I was young. I come out of the army. I'm only 21 years old and I'm inexperienced. Uh, what do I know? I'm still learning so many things. Um, and so I was very uh, much um, intimidated at the very thought of starting a mission. I had no intention of starting a mission. Uh, my idea was to offer our services. So I, I went around. I didn't have the money uh, to afford a vehicle or anything. So I was hitchhiking around. I went to about 45, 50 different mission leaders around South Africa offering our services. We're a group of Christians who've done our military service and we want to be missionaries across the border into war-torn areas, communist countries where the church is persecuted, Mozambique and Gola and Zimbabwe and so on. And, uh, you know, would you be willing to use us? And I got uniformly the same response. Not, can't be done, shouldn't be done, too dangerous, not legal. What if one of you got killed or captured? Uh, no, um, uh, this isn't the right time. Uh, this isn't the right way. Uh, it's too dangerous. It's too difficult. It's not legal. So uh, as I was going from one to the other, 
getting nothing but dead-end streets and, and roadblocks and people with a gift of criticism and a ministry of discouragement. I brought it back to my mission leader, um, Francis Grimm of Hospital Christian Fellowship, and he said, he who gets a vision gets the job. You've got the vision, start a mission. Well, I was super intimidated. I mean, gee, at that stage, I was approaching 22, but I, I was not... Uh, I was not uh, 21 yet, and I thought, I can't start a mission um, at, at this age. So that's why the name Frontline Fellowship, it's, I didn't call it Frontline Mission, uh, called Frontline Fellowship, because uh, I still thought of us more as a fellowship of Christians who have missionary mind, and hopefully some big mission, maybe a denominational mission, will adopt us at some stage, and we can, we can go forward. But in fact, uh, nobody else was willing to take the risks or take responsibility, and so we ended up from a, a fellowship, a Bible study and prayer fellowship, ended up becoming a mission. And for the first few years, we didn't even have an office. We didn't have a typewriter. If I wanted to do, use a typewriter or photocopy, I'd go down the road um, to Gospel Defense League and Mrs. Scarborough let me use her uh, photocopy or uh, if I needed to get, uh, make a phone call, I would go along to the army base and uh, 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 Colonel Rader would let me at Sector 4-0 or Winburg and so on uses telephone. Uh, and, you know, we didn't have any administrative base. We were going for about six years with absolutely no mission um, base administrative structure, didn't so much as have card index files, and mailing lists were done normally by hand, um, <laughs> hand wrote envelopes, but we only had about 150 on a mailing list after a few years anyway, uh, at, at that stage. And it's only when my, well, later became my wife, when Lenora joined us, in 1988, that we actually started to set up, she set up the first card index system. Um, we had friends lend us a barn, a, a literal barn, where the water came down inside the walls. And that was where we, we set up the first office for Frontline Fellowship in 1988 and got our first fax machine in 1989. That was very exciting. And uh, all of uh, the administrative basis really got started later. So originally it was a bunch of enthusiastic Christians hitchhiking, going on motorbike and uh, dugout canoe walking across the borders as the case may be. And uh, the administrative basis and the mission came later. Yes, that's, that's, uh, that's fascinating, Peter. And I'd like to go back to some of the, um, you talked about Mozambique and Angola. We've got a lot of hostility in black communist countries and you being a white South African as well, it's not just going to be against your faith necessarily. Um, can you give any examples of some of the um, bad experiences you had as a missionary and also any uh, answers to prayer you received and experienced mm. during those experiences? Yes. Um, well, I, I was concerned about this. It did seem a bit strange. You know, here I'm a white South African going into a black communist country like Mozambique, where missionaries were illegal, by the way, as well. I couldn't exactly put missionary on the uh, um, <laughs> immigration form of, of trying to apply for a visa. And so... Um, I tended to put things like teacher, which, which I am, I'm, I'm a teacher, a uh, Bible teacher, and uh, sometimes I put journalists down, sometimes I put medical relief, because I, I was doing medical relief too, and um, you know had some paramedical training from both the Army and the Fire Brigade, so uh, I used different covers to be able to get across the borders, but uh, it was 
sometimes I got real hostility. I mean, I, I, I was sometimes uh, attacked by mobs um, for distributing gospel literature or doing open air preaching. Yeah, you know, I've, I've been kicked in the face and uh, back and uh, kicked black and blue and beaten sometimes with poles, um, axe handles, um, spades, and so on. I've 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 had some hostile reactions. I, I did get arrested and a couple of times. I've got arrested in Zambia and Mozambique. Uh, I've been in interrogation, uh, arrested even in Sudan, detained in Zimbabwe. So I've had some some real hostile reactions. We've been under fire, been ambushed, riding through ambush alley in Mozambique with um, bullets literally ricocheting off the roads around me as I was zooming down on my motorbike, off-road motorbike, which you feel awfully vulnerable. You don't even have anything around you. You're just wearing a helmet and a leather jacket and gloves and um, soaring through the air top speed while there's bullets whizzing around. So um, I had some of those kind of experiences. And uh, my first experience of doing evangelism amongst Russians was quite intriguing. I had a whole lot of Russian New Testaments. of a simple black New Testament provided by Slavic Gospel Association. So it didn't say anything on the cover. It was a black plastic cover and it, um, it was the New Testament in Russian side. Now, I put a whole lot of these in my pockets and my sling bag and I, I sauntered off to the Mapuche Harbor knowing there's a lot of Russian sailors there. There were warships, submarines, all sorts of things in the harbor uh, from the Soviet Red Navy. So I thought, um, let me see if I can do some New Testament distribution down at the harbor amongst the Russian sailors. And to pass security, I waited until a truck was going through security and I walked briskly on the other side of the truck so that the security officials were uh, on the one side and they didn't see me walking past on the other side into the uh, uh, actual harbor area. I'm walking along the harbor and um, I see some Russians coming along and I, I greeted them in my attempt at Russian and handed them New Testament and next one next. And after a few minutes, I'd hand out five New Testaments, and I was getting this exhilarated feeling of, wow, this is so great. This is this is easier than I expected. And then there was this bellow from behind me, and uh, it was a large Russian, sort of an Arnold Schwarzenegger-sized Russian. He barreled down towards me, obviously very angry, and he just lifted me off my feet above his head, and he flung me into the harbor. And there I was, flying through the air, <laughs> ended up in this messy, oily, dirty, litter-ridden um, cesspool of a harbor and uh, flying around there. And next thing, plop, plop, uh, they dropping New Testaments around me. Oh, dear. Um, uh, several of the New Testaments I've just distributed ending up in the water around me. I'm trying to get hold of them and get through this oily water with all the uh, filth and junk and litter on top of it to a wall and find some ladder that I can get up out of there. Uh, I was really quite messy and having trouble seeing properly with uh, all the guns. Uh, so that was one of my first attempts at doing evangelism amongst Russians. Uh, that, that wasn't a very promising beginning. But yes, I, I've had obstacles and um, there were times that I wasn't treated well. But on the other hand, I was often surprised how I got away with amazing amounts of things. Here I was in communist Mozambique on a motorbike and I would have outreaches, public meetings, to open their preaching, distribution, and I was basically generally being left alone. So I said to one of the Christians who, who was um, my interpreter and helping me a lot, why are they leaving me alone? I'm, you know, I, obviously I'm not local. I said, exactly. You don't look like any of the Portuguese whites that they know. They think you're East German. 
and the East Germans from the uh, the uh, security police, SNASP. So they thought our Stasi. I mean, why? What other blonde white person <laughs> is there down in in Maputo? He's obviously Stasi. Must be East German. And so, really, and and they literally were leaving me alone because that they were uh, concerned that um, I, I could be one of the people for the secret police because there were East Germans and Russians in there, and the East Germans, the Stasi, actually ran the SNASP security police in Maputo. So that was intriguing. And I remember one time uh, after I'd been told this, I was at some roadblock and this chap started to search in my backpack. And I knew if you if you just undid that one strap, there's going to be a horde of barbels out of, falling out of my backpack, which was strapped in the back of my motorbike uh, on the driveway. So I just smacked his hand away and I shouted at him in German and got onto my bike and rode away. And they just stood back and did nothing. So uh, evidently they were pre-programmed to respond to authority. And when I responded like that, they just froze. And uh, extraordinary things happened. <laughs> um, it, it wasn't always positive, but some amazing things took place. And for example, just to show how God can uh, solve problems that you didn't even know you'd go into. When I first wanted to go to Mozambique, the, uh, the door was closed because Mozambique and Angola were effectively at uh, uh, Mozambique Angola were at war with South Africa. We didn't have any embassies with them. They didn't have any consulates with us. And so the only way I could get into Mozambique was to go through a third country. So I went through Swaziland. And Swaziland had trade relations with both Mozambique and South Africa. So that was easy. But when I went to the Mozambique embassy in Swaziland, they said, but you're not a citizen of Swaziland. You need a letter of recommendation from a Swazi citizen. I hadn't thought of that. Now, it so happened that the only contact I had in Swaziland at that time was the local hospital Christian fellowship representative. And uh, uh, that, that was Dr. Uh, Samuel Hyde. Now, Dr. Samuel Hyde was a, a retired doctor, but he was still at that stage the, uh, I didn't know it at the time, but he was still the personal physician for King Sabuza, King Sabuza the second, the monarch of Swaziland. And his son, Dr. David Hyde was the uh, Minister of Health. Now, I didn't know all of these things at that stage, but but he was an HCF contact, and I went to him, and he gave me on an impressive-looking letter, a letter of introduction. And sure enough, after a couple of weeks, my visa came through, diplomatic gratis, free visa. In Africa, to get a free visa is extraordinary, but it had a diplomatic stamp on it because of the respected name of Hyde. I mean... Dr. Samuel Hyde is the personal physician of the king, and his son is the Minister of Health. And so a letter of recommendation for him carried so much weight, I had this diplomatic visa on my first visit to Mozambique. And, and I went through five roadblocks into Maputo without being searched once at any of them. And that first mission was just such a, a blessing because obviously that diplomatic visa, and there were no tourists, there were no missionaries in the whole country. And so they must have assumed that I was someone very important. And even I was riding a very humble motorbike, a 250cc off-road Honda XL motorbike. But this this is just some of the ways that God provided that sometimes in the most extraordinary ways, while I might have been treated badly on different occasions, my first mission to Mozambique, I was treated extraordinarily well because I had a diplomatic visa. And other ones, I was I got away with a lot because they thought I was Stasi. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, it's um, the other um, interesting aspect of the 40th anniversary 
of the launch of Frontline Mission is that you've written a book, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. Now, we've covered uh, on on our uh, shows together over the years uh, uh, many aspects of you, you touched on the time in Zambia where you were effectively tortured and Margaret Thatcher ended up coming to your aid at some uh, uh, conference uh, and basically shamed them into letting you and your fellow missionaries go. Uh, we've also talked about your confrontations with uh, Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. But what would you like to share with the audience your... I wouldn't even use the word favourite, but the the stories for you that most stand out in this book. Back to you, Peter. Mm. Yes, I, I've I've put in a lot of uh, behind the the news headlines, intriguing anecdotes and conversations and confrontations and uh, things that uh, in many cases I I couldn't even mention before. Uh, but it it ha- has the confrontations with Desmond Tutu uh, at the Archbishop's coronation, uh, they called it enthronement, <laughs> uh, in, in uh, Cape Town. It's, it's, it's got my uh, interactions and battles with Desmond Tutu and other liberation theologians at the National Council of Churches. Um, it includes my confrontation with President Mandela after I marched uh, tens of thousands of people to Parliament to protest his policies and, and our um, sort of tennis match of uh, mental um, uh, sword fighting it was it was almost like uh, fencing uh, verbally and uh, with the ANC in parliament when I was giving submissions and they asked me if I would apologize for what we'd done in, um, in the SADF and my confrontations with Swapo terrorists so it's it's got a whole lot of that and uh, of course Kenneth Cohinda versus Margaret Thatcher when I was imprisoned in in uh, in Zambia as a guest of Kenneth Cohinda was he was the chairman of the frontline states and Kenneth Kunda was the key person who's going to be actually tackling Margaret Thatcher, the iron lady at the Vancouver conference, in 1987. And so I was arrested in Zambia, 1987, October 87. And uh, I was in the presidential detainee cell. In other words, without charge held at the president's pleasure, quote unquote, without charge, mind you. And uh, Margaret Thatcher stood up for us and, and um, uh, challenged old Kenneth Gundon, it, it was a, a, a really dramatic uh, exchange because there's Kenneth Gundon calling on Margaret Thatcher to put sanctions on South Africa. And she challenges back, well, why don't you put sanctions on South Africa? You're getting all your corn and maize and you're getting uh, everything from your railways being maintained by Southern Railways and Zambian Airways maintained by South African Airways. And you're getting your cattle dipped by South African veterinarians. And when one of you gets any snake bite, the uh, anti-venom serum comes from the veterinary uh, surgeries in Pretoria and how many tens of thousands of Zambians have worked in South Africa and how many hundreds of millions of pounds come into the Zambian public treasury because of your uh, migrant labor workers. Why doesn't Zambia put sanctions on South Africa? And Kenneth Kondra said, but that would put Zambians out of work. Exactly, said the Iron Lady. And because South Africa is one of Britain's most important trading partners, it would put many British people out of work, quite aside from the many South Africans that would be put out of work if we had sanctions. And then Kenneth Gunder says, because of South Africa's human rights abuses, you need to implement sanctions on South Africa. And Margaret Thatcher responded, who are you to talk about human rights abuses? You are the unelected dictator of a one-party state. You have four British missionaries detained without trial, being tortured by your security forces in the Lusaka Central Prison right now. 
laid out a details facts and of course knocked out Kenneth Gunder. Kenneth Gunder was out for the count. I mean, that was the end of the uh, whole debate and battle with them at that stage. And so uh, Kenneth Gunder, uh, right at that point, he uh, gave the order, release, you know, get those missionaries out of there. Well, that was quite an intriguing um, episode. Well, and some people might know about some of what was involved while I was being interrogated. Um, yeah, six excruciating interrogations, which included, you know, being rifle butted and uh, um, waterboarded. Well, water would have been nice, but it was more filthy than that. And uh, uh, degrading interrogation sequences that was going on. Well, uh, what we've put in the book, in addition to all that, is some of the international intrigue that came out later. And uh, in 2001, Peter Stiff published a book, Warfare by Other Means, which claimed on pages 292 to 294 that our arrest was actually orchestrated by British military intelligence and South African military intelligence who, who collaborated on turning us into sacrificial lambs to counter Kenneth Kunda's anticipated attacks on Iron Lady at the Commonwealth Conference in Vancouver. We were actually set up, and in fact, we were set up very effectively. Uh, what happened is I was actually called up uh, uh, for a day, which is rare, because, you know, we would do two years military service and then 10 years part-time service, citizens force, where we could be called up uh, for a month to three months a year. And uh, so effectively for 10 years after my military service, I was on call up and, you know, could be a, any sort of things that you'd be called up for. But uh, one day I was called up for a day and I had to report to the brigadier in charge of Western province command at the castle. And I marched up the same stairs where, um, the general commandant had once been General Charles Gordon, going back to the 1870s and 1880s. And uh, the brigadier, when I came to a standstill and saluted, um, said, you're here to talk to him. And he pointed to a colonel from Chief of Staff Intelligence, who had come down from Fort Jacobo, from Pretoria, who asked me about my Mozambique report and said, can we get Mozambique, uh, can we get people into Mozambique to film what I had just written about in what's been published in Mozambique report and later the, in the Killing Fields of Mozambique book. And it's certainly I couldn't. He said, uh, could you take L.J. Fenton? Now, um, L.J. Fenton was the most famous war correspondent in South Africa at the time. He had produced hordes of films and books on wars as far afield as Angola and Uganda and all over the continent, even Sudan. I mean, he, he was uh, a legend in the 70s and, and 80s. So... Uh, and the 60s. He was doing this for a long time. And so uh, they organized me to meet LJ Fenter and we and rigged up a, uh, you know, going across the border for me to take him in. And they started to set this up for October. Now, I didn't know at the time, but this all gets revealed to me by this book that's been published later, that what they were doing is they had decided that it would be great to get British passport holding missionaries arrested by the Zambians at the very time that Kenneth Gwanda, the Zambian president, chairman of the frontline states, is tackling Margaret Thatcher over disinvestment in um, in South Africa, and that this would embarrass Kenneth Gwanda and blunt his campaign to force Britain to place full economic sanctions on South Africa. And so it was an unusual setup, and I only realized later how we'd actually been set up. It never crossed my mind at the time that my own people would have set me up, uh, but they had. And uh, LJ Fenter was such a, a highly respected war correspondent. And uh, obviously, I was willing to 
to do anything I could to help and particularly to make the plight of the persecuted church in Mozambique better known. But in this way, they managed to to uh, pre- prepare us for the exact timing, to make sure I didn't do any other mission, but that in October I could be ready to be arrested in Zambia. And what I also didn't know at that time, but this book revealed, is one of my key missionaries was actually working for South African military intelligence and had been planted amongst us to control me. Now, what happened is it was well known in the South African army and, well, all over that I was a real animal rights activist. And um, I'm a major campaigner against ivory poaching and rhino poaching and all that. I'm, I'm, I'm what they called in Rhodesia a bunny hugger, you know, in other words, an animal lover. And it so happened that there were elements in South African military intelligence, chief of staff intelligence, were involved in ivory poaching in Angola. And they had this chap attached to me who was working on a mission, who was an ex Australian Special Forces, ex-British Paratrooper, ex-Rhodesian Special Air Service, Sea Squadron, and a South African Reconnaissance Commander. Now he's working in a mission. And uh, he was there to basically control me. And his, his, one of his tasks was to keep me out of the areas where they were doing rhino and elephant poaching up in Angola. And we had times that I would drive tremendous distances, like from Cape Town to Fintuk, get on a plane, only to have the, the um, flights recalled and cancelled and uh, um, we'd gone all that distance for nothing and uh, it turned out later well this is all part of keeping me from getting into these areas where this was going on and to to waste my time and to ensure that I didn't interfere with what they were up to and um, the common denominator was this friend who was actually getting his instructions from military intelligence well he ensured that everybody on this team the only time ever in our history they were all British passport holders. So we were all British passport holders, the four missionaries going on this mission through Zambia by road to get into Malawi. And from Malawi, we were deploying to Mozambique to help the persecuted church, help LJFN to get his film footage documenting the persecution church, the scorched earth, uh, the genocide taking place uh, by the communist Filimo in, in Mozambique. And, you know, I said, we don't need to drive. We can fly to Malawi and deploy from there. No, they wanted it to be by road. Okay, I, I, I their story, even though it wasn't really necessary. And uh, uh, also, he he also insisted, this this um, ex-SS chap who was working uh, as one of my missionaries, he talked us out of taking any firearms with us. So it was a mission that none of us had any firearms, which was very rare at that time. And uh, uh, he said, look, we can get weapons from Renama when we get into Mozambique. There's no need to carry them over, over the borders and so on. And uh, it just so happened, so we had no weapons with us, which was a very important part of the the whole setup. And he was very careful as to what we took and didn't take, and that we went by road, and then it got delayed, delayed, and and it was all designed for us to to leave so that we would get captured on the 7th of October. The timing, of course, was key uh, to coincide with the Vancouver conference. And it all came out later. In fact, this chap's also written his own book, which details some of these things too. So little did I know that behind um, our prison experience in Zambia uh, was our friends from South African military intelligence, who I have done a lot of chat and service amongst, a lot of lectures amongst, and uh, that uh, one of my co-workers was actually uh, working according to a script designed by British military intelligence and South African military intelligence to embarrass Kenneth Kohinda and to blunt his campaign to force Margaret Thatcher to bring sanctions on us 
And so, you know, at the end of it, I, I made the comment at the end of chapter 15 in the book um, uh, on arrested and imprisoned in, in Zambia. The stakes were high, they claimed. Well, the risks to ourselves were also very high. With friends like these, who needs enemies? Back to you, Andrew. <laughs> Indeed, yes. That's a very interesting addendum to to that story that uh, you uh, covered before on one of our shows. It's a horrible story, but a fascinating uh, event to have lived through and survived through. Not many people can say they've been through such a ghastly experience. But um, the other thing that may not be clear, certainly to myself, I, I envisage you going into a communist country and with your Bibles and trying to, to, to wake people up to the word of God. But sometimes you get into countries that actually have uh, Christian churches already there. Uh, and these churches are being persecuted by the communist leadership. So what have you been able to do in situations where you've actually gone to help out a particular Christian church, whether the communist Marxists stormed from their uh, satanic leadership, uh, Peter? Back to you. Yes, well, <clears throat> I always believe it's important to research, and I'm a researcher by nature. In fact, my one of my tasks in Hospital Christian Fellowship was setting up the library and being a researcher as well. And so uh, I had in hand the Operation World book by Patrick Johnson. Patrick Johnson is an extraordinary missiologist. And Patrick Johnson has put together for many years, many editions of Operation World, which has got chapters in every country in the world, which tells you everything that is known about Mozambique. And he, in fact, started as a missionary in Rhodesia. And he was, same time I was at school there, he was going around as an evangelist and putting together in apple cart boxes um, files on different countries in the world and getting printed Operation World. Interestingly, when he first tried to get it published, he was told there's no market for an intercessory handbook. I mean, yeah, nobody's internet. Well, so far, I think they've sold 15 million copies in multiple languages and something like eight different editions. So it just shows you, don't be discouraged when people say there's no market. I believe the man who invented Monopoly was also turned down by all the main board games saying it's too complicated, nobody will ever follow it. And apparently Monopoly is the most successful board game ever. So uh, Patrick Johnson's book told me about the needs of Mozambique, the least evangelized country in the Southern Hemisphere. Less than 4% Protestant Christians in the whole of Mozambique. No missionaries allowed. No one under 18 allowed in church. No baptism of anyone under 18 and so on. And, and so I had a bit of an idea of, of what the situation was like, but I also knew that there were churches in Mozambique. They were heavily persecuted. And in fact, I learned very soon after I started crossing the border, 8,000 churches had been confiscated or destroyed by the communist Philema. And I became one of the researchers for Patrick Johnson's Operation Bolden. Many of the country reports in future editions included my updates and first-hand eyewitness. So much I've got Patrick Johnson writing uh, a forward. For, he does the first forward in my book for Behind Enemy Lines for Christ. It's so good to have such a experienced, respected missiologist endorsing uh, this book. And really, it's, it's his research that helped me get started. Well, uh, again, not knowing much about these countries, uh, I would uh, often go to the British embassy just before crossing the borders. And I'd, when I'm talking about going to British embassy and, for example, Nairobi before crossing into Sudan or so on, and you asked to meet the British military attaché, nobody asks you why you want to see him, you know, who asks to see the military attaché? So he will always come down because who wants to see me? I mean, this is, you know, rare. And um, I'd always know 
enough other military people that they knew and we could sit and have a cup of tea and chat. And uh, In fact, I've even done this uh, in, in uh, just off Trafalgar Square, going uh, to South Africa House and stopping off at the South African military attaché's place and catching up the news and having rooibos tea while looking out over Trafalgar Square and chatting up. So you, you'll often find an um, uh, ally in, in the military attaché's if, if you're a military person. And uh, I would ask them, look, I'm going across the border here. What's been going on in Mozambique? You know, where's the Renama activity and where's ambushes and so on? And, and he'd pull out maps and, you know, incident reports and this place is bombed and this is happening there. And someone got shot up on the road over here and there was abductions over there. And I, I get a bit of a feel for the security situation. So the other thing that I do before crossing borders, go to refugee camps. So go to Mozambique, go to refugee camps in Swaziland and speak to people who were in Mozambique who fled and try and find the people who fled most recently and find out what's going on. And you normally get a pretty good picture. But still, once I get into the countries, um, now through the refugees, I've normally learned of uh, this pastor so-and-so, evangelist so-and-so, you know, this place, you looked them up. And and so when I, any country I go to, but the first thing I'll do is try and find the local Christians and ask, what can we do? How can we help? What are your needs? And they guide us and that makes us more efficient and more effective. And uh, for example, my first uh, mission into Mozambique, um, I found myself working with uh, both the Anglicans and the Baptists. They were two of the most active missions and uh, churches in Mozambique. And uh, when I started going into Sudan, I started with the Episcopal Church of Sudan because they were the largest and most effective and I had personal invitations. So there, there normally are some Christians on the ground and they might be in a bad way. They might not have anything. When I started going into Angola, they were so devastated. They didn't have buildings there. Where's your church? That burnt out place. That was the church. Cubans burnt it down. Where's your pastor? Communist shot him. What can we do to help you? Biblia. Biblia. I mean, I wanted Bibles. And when I brought out Bibles, people danced and sang and cried and fell on their knees and wept and kissed the Bibles and kissed us both cheeks, Portuguese style, uh, and uh, uh, absolute euphoria to receive. This is the greatest gift anyone could ever ask for, the Word of God in my own language. I've been praying day and night for my own copy of the Word of God. I've been praying for five years for my own copy of the Word of God, not since the Cubans burnt my Bible, I have had the Word of God for myself. And so uh, we had extraordinary experiences, and we just saw the tremendous needs. But yes, there were churches. So, for example, I came back from Mozambique on one of my first missions there with the details that there were quite aside from that described the long way as an unreached people group in, in Operation World. Well, I came back with details that there were 600 Baptist churches amongst the long way. Now, nobody knew of that. Uh, this, this had happened since the communists taken over. It was underground growth. And of course, they didn't have buildings. Most of the buildings were destroyed, but they were meeting under trees and in the bush. And so there were 600 congregations of Baptists alone. And, uh, when I report this to Baptist Union South Africa, they were astounded. I mean, they didn't know. And I'd brought back enough documentation to prove and to justify the, the need to get involved. Well, would you know, I started to get into trouble for this. And the day came when I was actually hauled before a Baptist Inquisition. And I, I've got this story in, in the book, too, where uh, I had the president of the Baptist Union um, uh, challenging me and the secretary general of the Baptist Union um, uh, saying, I've been to Maputo, and I can tell you there's no persecution of the church in Mozambique. And I said, excuse me, sir, how long were you in Maputo for? Three days. I said, did you travel outside of Maputo? No. I said, 
Where did you stay, my Purdue? The Polona Hotel? Yes, Polona Hotel. The five-star Polona Hotel, where all the, the Russian military aid workers stay. And I said, sir, I don't understand how three days in Maputo, where you probably were a guest of AIM. Now, AIM is Agency Information Mozambique, and uh, that's the government's official <laughs> propaganda department. And, uh, you know, they organizing a guided tour. So even if the person that he spoke to was saying to him, we're persecuted by the government, which they wouldn't because the interpreters for the other side, the interpreter can tell him what he wants because what did the um, Secretary General of the Baptist Union of South Africa know of Portuguese? So a completely state-run thing, driving around in uh, the vehicles provided by the government and with a government-provided translator, well, what do you think you're going to discover? So anyway, I just challenged him and said, I don't see how your three days in Maputo, staying in a five-star Polona hotel, gives you any position to refute what my eyewitness first-hand testimony in Zambezia province and Tet province in the north of Mozambique, what's happening to persecution of the Baptist churches there amongst the long way. And the, the day came when they got a whole inquisition. There was a semicircle of uh, leadership and they were sitting behind tables and so on. And there's one chair in the middle of the hall and I'm sitting there facing this inquisition with the president of the Baptist Union there. And they were absolutely outraged that I was uh, presenting details about the persecution church in Mozambique and Gola. And I was told the whole world wants South Africa to go for one man, one vote and to go the same way as Mozambique and Gola. And you're ruining everything by your stories about persecution of the church in Mozambique and Gola. We're trying to get South Africa to go the same way as Mozambique uh, and Angola. Why are you doing this? It, this is Peter Hammond contra mundum. By the way, contra mundum is Latin for against the world comes from Athanasius contra mundum, when Athanasius was against the world when he was standing for the doctrine of the Trinity. Well, um, I responded to him that the duty of a missionary is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And uh, you can imagine they were not happy with me because I was rocking the boat. And what church leaders basically want you to do is rock the cradle, put people back to sleep. They don't want you to rock the boat. So I had quite a lot of confrontations, and we talk about some of this, uh, I, I give these these different um, attacks because it's not just it's not just the communist persecutors that need to be exposed. It's a World Council of Churches treachery that needs to be exposed, and the cowardice of evangelical Christians who should know better in compromising with these traitors, these false ministers, false prophets, false teachers, false shepherds, who, who are being useful idiots for the communists. And so, I've tried to in this book provide a voice for the voiceless to speak up for the persecuted church, particularly in Africa and also Eastern Europe, because also worked all throughout Eastern Europe uh, from uh, Albania in the south through uh, Poland in the north and uh, all, all the countries in between. And uh, I must say, it's, it's so important that we speak up uh, for those who've been persecuted and we expose the collaborators and the compromisers who enabled the communists to persecute the Christians. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Yes, and um, something that um, wouldn't immediately necessarily come to mind when people talk about uh, missionary work, but uh, one of I, what I believe to be your greatest achievements is you're probably the only person I've ever known who was involved in the formation of a country. So what can you tell us about that? Well, that really is a tremendous privilege. And um, I was able to 
experienced some successful secessions. I remember when I was doing Bible smuggling behind the Iron Curtain into Eastern Europe, and I, I, I referred to some of this when, um, after getting married, I, I'd been behind Iron Curtain before, but my wife's father had been brought up, um, uh, he, he was doing work throughout Eastern Europe for 67 years. He, he ministered throughout everywhere in Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, all these places. And so when I was married in early 1989, my wife and I went on a Bible smuggling operation behind Iron Curtain in a car following my parents-in-law who were smuggling everywhere from Czechoslovakia through uh, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania. And we went into Croatia, part of Yugoslavia at that time. And um, uh, in Croatia, I heard the people there, the underground church, speaking about how they're going to break away from Yugoslavia. They're going to succeed. Croatia, Slovenia, all going to secede from, from Yugoslavia. At the time, I thought this is not really possible. And um, they pointed out, in Yugoslavia, we have uh, seven different nations. We've got six different republics. We have five different languages. We have uh, four uh, different religions. We've got uh, three different calendars. <laughs> We've got two different alphabets, but we only have one political party, the Communist Party, and uh, how we need to secede. Well, intriguing, and uh, I must say I thought they're off the wall. And yet, do you know, within a year they had seceded from from Yugoslavia and uh, they won their, their independence, both Slovenia and uh, Croatia. And Croatia had a tough war. Slovenia only had an 11-day war. Uh, Croatia had more like a five-year war, but but they won the independence from Yugoslavia. And the first time I went to uh, Czechoslovakia, and I was, I was in Bratislava, and they were talking about uh, how Slovakia is going to break away from uh, Czech Republic and, and, and form an independent Slovakian Republic. And I thought, that's unlikely, but it happened, and it happened peacefully. And also Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. So with that background, knowing how the Baltic states and many other countries had broken free and Ukraine had gotten independence and all this, um, uh, when I started going to South Sudan, it didn't take me long to realize there's only one solution here, long-term solution. South Sudan needs to redraw the map. They need to secede. Uh, you can't expect Christian blacks in the south of Sudan to ever be free until they can redraw the map where they have the majority because they'll always be a minority in a Muslim Arab country as long as the present borders exist. And only if they redraw the boundaries, uh, recognizing ethno-linguistic realities, demographics, will there be peace? Because already millions of people have died in a senseless war since 1955. And uh, uh, to be fair, the missionaries had warned that this would happen. And the missionaries had pleaded with the British government to redraw the map and let South Sudan go separate to be independent or make it part of Uganda or Kenya, anything, but don't put it under the Muslim Arabs. It's a recipe for war. And for whatever reason, the British Foreign Office left the whole of Sudan in the hands of the Muslim Arabs, and they just started genocide against the Christian South. The, the moment the Union Jack came down and the British left on the 1st of January 1956, uh, the war began. Uh, Ananya one, they call it, uh, the, the first war of independence. And, and this continued all the way through. So when I was going into Sudan from 1995 on, I got into discussions and arguments with the leaders of the resistance fighters. That included Colonel John Garang and uh, his second command at the time, uh, Commander Salvakir, and uh, they were arguing that this is a good idea, but it's not possible. The map of Africa has never been redrawn, not since the Berlin Conference of 1885, and there's no other organization of Afghan unity would ever tolerate it. We can't redraw the map and, and so on and so forth. And I said, well, 
Eritrea has. And I said, yes, but Eritrea uh, was a separate country um, from Abyssinia back when the Berlin Conference was signed 19, in 1885. Uh, South Sudan's never been recognized as that. And and the organization of African unities never accepted any change from the Berlin Conference 1885. They, they don't want to uh, open that can of worms because there's so many other countries that want independence, like Biafra um, uh, from Nigeria and so on. And uh, I argued that you will never be free unless you redraw the map. And they said, the best we can hope for is autonomy. We can never get independence. So I was arguing with the founder of the SPLA, Colonel John Grang, and his second command, Commander Silver Keir, as recently as 2001 and 2002. Now, it might interest some of the listeners to hear that Commander Silver Keir is now the president of an independent South Sudan. In 2011, 9th of July 2011, Commander Silver Keir became the first president of an independent South Sudan. <laughs> so nine years before he was arguing that it's not possible, and now he's the president of an internationally recognized independent country, separate from Islamic Sudan. And uh, that's something I worked for, I campaigned for. I wrote the books Faith and Defiant Sudan, uh, three editions, helped produce films on Sudan, like Sudan, the Holocaust, Terrorism, Persecution. And I spoke at over 1,200 meetings inside Sudan, seminars, conferences, God and government seminars, and more than 1,000 meetings outside of Sudan at campaigning for Sudan's independence, recruited Samaritan's Purse, uh, Franklin Graham, others to campaign for South Sudan as independence as well. And uh, a lot of great things happened, but the Lord just raised up supporters. But it's it's an extraordinary answer to prayer. I'd say it's one of our great um, Trump uh, triumphs of answers to prayer is that South Sudan is now free of Islamic Sudan, Sharia law, jihad, and is recognized as an independent country. And uh, while they still have challenges, most people would have thought that's impossible. And today, the Bible's available, and Christian schools are open, and evangelism's legal, and missionaries can go into South Sudan. And that situation was completely closed. Sudan was a place of genocide and massacres uh, back when we began this work in 95, and nobody saw any hope of the map being redrawn. And it just shows we should not listen to the naysayers and the people with a gift of discouragement and a ministry of criticism who say it can't be done, it shouldn't be done, this isn't the right time. Uh, because I've seen throughout the last 40 years a lot of answers to prayer. And South Sudan's independence is one monumental um, answer that refutes the people who pessimists and who say that it can't be done. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And before we go, can you please, folks, this new book is like an autobiography of Peter's as well because the mission has been his life as you can hear in all the interesting anecdotes he's told us about it. So the new book is called Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ about your 40 years as a missionary or the 40 years of frontline mission. Uh, how can people get this book Peter? Yes well by God's grace it's at the printer right now and uh, being uh, churned off the press uh, we will be launching it next week uh, on the 7th of April, which is the 40th anniversary of our cross-border missions. And uh, we're also seeking to make it available as an ebook and as a print-on-demand uh, through Lulu. So uh, all a person needs to go is to go to the frontlinemissionsa.org website, frontlinemissionsa.org website, or christianlibertybooks.co.za. And uh, Christian Liberty Books is publishing it, and a Frontline Mission SA 
www.ngpodcast.org or have the links too. So either way, we'll get you to it. And you will see uh, both the availability uh, as a book, as an ebook. And if I've got it right, I think that the uh, the prices are um, in pounds. It's going to be uh, 22 pounds for the hardcover and 16 pounds for the softcover. And, uh, the, and the ebook, $7. Uh, so uh, this is 448 pages, 440 pictures, 46 chapters covering 40 years of missions. In fact, going back to when I was born, 1960, giving a bit of everything from the Rhodesian Bush War through the South African War uh, uh, up, up in Angola, um, Mozambique Wars, Rwanda, Sudan, Congo. Uh, it, it's got so much of the history of Africa. And this is the politically incorrect history, including uh, how the Berlin Wall came down, the Iron Curtain collapsed, and the last battles of the Cold War up in the Lomba River of Angola, and Colonel Jan Breitenbach and I preaching to the communists. So it's got a whole range of things that um, politically incorrect history, for sure. So you can email me personally, peter at frontline.org.za or go to admin at christianlibertybooks.co.za to order a copy of this book. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. I can't see a direct link up there at the moment, but we will certainly share that with you as soon as we have that. So initially, please email Peter. Could you give your email address again, Peter? Yes, certainly. So it's peter at frontline.org.za. Our general email would be mission at frontline.org.za. But yes, we will be putting it up. And I know that the book is on the Christian Liberty Books website. We haven't yet put it on the Frontline web, but that will be rectified in a matter of a few days. That's wonderful. So what a fascinating book. And uh, it's certainly going to be a book that I'm going to want to be reading. Uh, So I want to thank Peter so much for joining us today on a show entitled The Real Story of missions behind enemy lines. I want to thank all of you for listening. I'll be back with you tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day. And bye for now.